You're listening to Art Affairs, episode 61. Today I'll be talking to Lily Seka Jones. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. Art Affairs is my attempt at shining a spotlight on the many wonderful people that make up this amazing art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, telling their stories. You can dig through previous episodes, complete with show notes, at artaffairspodcast.com. But the best way to stay plugged in is to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're really enjoying the show and want to help support what I'm doing here in an even bigger way, Check out the Art Affairs Patreon. Not only does it give you an opportunity to help keep the show going, but there are several community-oriented benefits as well, like getting early access to episodes and suggesting questions for upcoming guests. You can find all the information about that at patreon.com slash artaffairs. You can also connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is artist Lily Seika-Jones. You know, I've really wanted to have Lily on the show for a while now, so I'm stoked that we were finally able to make this happen. I absolutely love the way that her work appears to be part of this bigger folklore that she's created. And we talk about what a big presence that folklore and mythology has been in her life, as well as how important it is to have a healthy work-life balance, an exciting new graphic novel project that she's working on, and a whole lot more. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lily Seika-Jones. Lily, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. And and uh, I'm especially flattered because from what I can tell, you don't do interviews very often or like at all. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. This is this is the first. Um. <laughs> and, and, and shout out to Ben from Gallery Nucleus for connecting us. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. <laughs> and so let's dive into your background a little bit. And from what I read, you were born in San Antonio, uh, which is actually not very far from where I live today in Austin. Um, but you didn't stay there. Like you were raised in, in Richmond, uh, British Columbia in Canada. So tell me about that. Like how young were you when you moved to Canada and what was the reason for that? Yeah, it's uh, super random. I usually don't even tell people where I was born because I don't really know much about Texas or San Antonio. Or <laughs> um, but yeah, no, my, my parents met in the States and they lived in San Antonio for a bit. Um, so yeah. That's that's why I was born there. But my dad originally grew up here in Vancouver. So um, when I was like one, yeah, one or two, they moved back up here. Um, so yeah, I have no memory <laughs> of San Antonio. But um, I've always thought it's kind of cool that I'm from there because, you know, it's got a cool history and everything. Um, I remember the Alamo. I mean, uh, right? do, do you have any like family still here? Uh, no, I have, I have no, okay. <laughs> no connections there at all. But, um, growing up though, my, my dad was a big history buff. So I was, I loved just reading about the history of that area. Um, and I would love to go back at some point. Um, so yeah, if I'm ever in the area, I'll hit you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I would say, um, 
uh, a lot of people that go to the Alamo uh, come away a little disappointed just because it is just very small. Like it's like kind of like a house. I mean, it's it's very small and kind of uh, yeah. uh, not very uh, particularly interesting to spend a lot of time there. But it's a beautiful city. And like there's the riverfront walk and like there's a lot of interesting stuff to do in San Antonio. I would just say, you know, constrain your expectations about the Alamo itself. <laughs> OK, well, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> Um, what kind of work did your parents do? Like, were they doing anything artistic? Um, actually, they're both artists, um, okay. funnily enough. Yeah, my dad, he does uh, colored pencil drawings, or he did for the longest time. Um, and they were always, like, depicting scenes in nature. But they always had, like, a kind of fantastical quality to them. So I think that kind of carried over into what I do now. Um mm. And then my mom does oil paintings, um, and she does, like, very romantic scenes, um, you know, cottages, flower vases, that kind of thing. So um, there's a lot of nostalgia around what they both do. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the environment I grew up in. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, just having that around you, do you feel that that's what kind of sparked your initial creativity uh, yourself? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I just remember our dining room was always a mess because <laughs> my mom would paint on the kitchen table or the dining room table, and it was always just covered in her oil paints. Um, so, yeah, we never we never really used that table for eating dinner. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but both my parents really encouraged my imagination. Like, my mom would do crafts with me all the time and my dad would um uh actually sometimes he'd get me to help him with his drawings mm, and nice. um yeah and he would or he would listen to the stories that I used to write when I was young um so was it something that they were hoping you would ultimately go into yourself was like that their dream um <laughs> they definitely weren't against it um I wouldn't say they were like pushing me into it, which was maybe a good thing because then I might have been a bit more resistant. They were just, honestly, they were both quite passive. Um, and actually all throughout high school, I really wanted to be a paleontologist. Um, so I don't think they knew that I was going to end up having a career in art until um, after university. But they always were very proud of the stuff that I made. And whenever we'd have guests over, they would pull my work out and I would go hide in my bedroom. But um. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that's changed a little bit. Um, I guess, what was the area like where you grew up, the, the environment of uh, the area in, in British Columbia that you grew up? Yeah. Um, so I, I moved around a bit when I was really young, but... We stuck around the longest in Steveston, which is like a little area in Richmond, so just south of Vancouver. And um, I grew up next to these like wetland reserves. Um, and so it was very like marshy, swampy, a lot of birds, um, you know, herons, blackbirds. Um, and it was pretty quiet too, which was nice. Um, tons of, you know, blackberry ramble. Um, there was this little path that I always loved to explore when I was younger, and it was like a little tunnel through a blackberry hedge. Um, and it reminded me of like that tunnel in Totoro that the kids walk through. Um, and it always felt very secret. And uh, 
this is kind of a funny story, but for the longest time, I thought only I knew about this trail. And it was like, <laughs> it was like my secret space because the trail would lead to a little opening in a thicket. Um, and it looked like a little room. Um, and then one day I was there and I loved to go when it was raining too. I love the rain. So that was another thing I was happy to grow up in is just tons of rain. Um, but I remember I was there once and then there was this couple um, walking along the trail and it totally <laughs> devastated me. <laughs> um, and I told my friends about it and they were like, oh yeah, that's Hunter's Trail. And I was like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> This is a thing that people... <laughs> know about but um so when, when they first uh when you first saw those people did you like oh man they discovered my trail my secret trail yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i was horrified i i ran home i was uh, it felt very uh violating you know i was like hang on this is my <laughs> secret space but um it's fine i guess everyone should be allowed to enjoy you know sure. that trail <laughs> And so I guess it sounds like you spent a lot of time in nature and that was just a big kind of presence in your life growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like to get out there, you know, almost every day. And um, I didn't mind, you know, being alone in nature. It it was nice to kind of escape into it. And um, I, uh, I mean, growing up reading books that took place in like, fantastical lands that were inspired by like the British countryside. It was nice to kind of like be able to escape in my own way without, you know, maybe being able to travel all the time. So um, yeah, it was a good environment for that, for sure. So, so you mentioned that, that your, your dad liked to listen to the stories that you wrote as a kid. So tell me about that. Like what got you into storytelling and, and just writing? Oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah, my dad and my mom, they both read to me a ton when I was younger. And um, I still have like very vivid memories of my dad reading Lord of the Rings to me when I was really young. So I think just being exposed to those writers made me want to take a shot at it myself. And so I would write these like fantastical stories taking place in like um, made up worlds. And so I did a lot of world building when I was younger and, um, yeah, they, they were pretty silly and thinking <laughs> about them now, I'm a little embarrassed that I've brought this up, but, um, <laughs> see, this is why I don't do interviews, Michael. So <laughs> no, no, I mean, I think it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's sort of telling, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, my dad was always really patient though. He would, I remember he would take me to this Mexican restaurant across the street and I would read these stories to him and they would have a lot of detail to them. Like I would, um, I wouldn't just like write the story. I would also do drawings of the plant life that existed in this world or the weapons that existed in it and the different races of creatures and um so there was like a lot that went into it and I even had like a file folder with all the material for these stories um and my dad would listen to all of it and get really excited about it with me so it's amazing yeah I think it just that just really encouraged me to keep developing like my imagination I guess and but then at the same time, you wanted to be a paleontologist. So that, that I mean, yeah. like, why was, was it just that you didn't think these creative pursuits were something you could make a profession out of? 
Um, I think that was it. Yeah, I think um, I think also because art was just such a big part of what I did and what my family did, it just didn't clue in as, yeah, something that I could professionally pursue because it was just a part of my life. Like, yeah, I... I make art, but, you know, I still need to get a job, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I was also obsessed with dinosaurs when I was younger, and um, I remember uh, I I didn't, I wasn't really, like, a Barbie or doll girl. Like, my dad would take me to the toy store and ask me to pick something out, right? And I I remember picking out... um, a um like a pachycephalosaurus dinosaur or just like just a very specific dinosaur toy that I could then go home with and play with in the backyard and um I just I loved the idea of like you know what though I think watching Jurassic Park also gave me um an incorrect view of what right. the life of a paleontologist would be so I don't think I wanted to be a paleontologist. I think I wanted to be in the movie Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess when did that that change? Because you ended up going to you know the university for art and English. Uh, when did you kind yeah. of diverge from that that desire to be a paleontologist? Um, so around tenth grade, I had um, I had a actually it was in. 11th grade that I had this really awesome uh, English teacher, um, Miss Datu, and she just really encouraged my writing. And so that kind of started to bring me back to the arts. And then I also had some really cool art teachers too. Um, I remember one of my art teachers who actually never taught me, but he would always like pop by my art class and see what I was working on, um, Mr. Sharma. And he was always, he would always get really excited about the stuff that I was drawing. And so that also kind of, I think, got me thinking like, oh, maybe I could actually do art. Mm-hmm. Um, and science class got exponentially harder and more <laughs> difficult. And when I discovered that doing anything in biology required a lot of memorization, I was like, um, you know what? Maybe I'll go into the arts. And um, <laughs> my, you know what, though? My biology teacher was really disappointed that I left the sciences and pursued the arts because the diagrams and the labs and everything that I would draw, they were always like, they were very good. Um, I also didn't know at the time that y- there was such a thing as becoming a paleo artist. So I think if I had known that I might have pursued like an artistic scientific path, but you know, another life. I actually really loved I loved those books. Um did you ever read Dinotopia? No, it sounds familiar though. I, I don't know what from though. It's like a series of picture books and uh this artist whose name has totally dropped out of my head, he would do these like amazing, very detailed uh paintings of this like fantastical dinosaur world where humans and dinosaurs lived alongside each other and um i later discovered that actually he is a 
paleo artist. And so he's like the guy they go to when they discover a new set of dinosaur bones and he'll imagine what this dinosaur might have looked like back in the day and he'll paint that up. And so um It's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Um yeah, I think in another life I would have pursued that, but I'm I'm happy with the path that I took. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it reminds me of some of the stuff that like people like William Stout have done over the years, you know, doing dinosaur paintings that depicting dinosaurs in a very kind of artistic way, but also like a very accurate and real way. Yeah, I, uh, I've always liked that challenge, actually, of um, trying to depict something in yeah a realistic, natural way, but also in a way that um, transports you and sparks your imagination. And it's like you're using your art to try to build a bridge between like the fantastical and the actual. And I think that challenge is what I love the most. And so I think I've been able to sort of carry that on in the work that I do now. Um, For sure. So what ultimately led you to, uh, I think, University of British Columbia? What did you, what led to your decision to go there? Yeah, I, um, well, I, I loved both English and art. And so I wanted to go to a university where I could pursue just a variety of subjects, um, which is why I didn't go to like just an art school. Mm. Uh, I wanted to go somewhere where I could also pursue like my writing or, or, you know, history or whatever else I was interested in. And I thought, um, I was also thinking of becoming an art and English teacher too. And so UBC seemed like a, a good spot and it was, you know, close enough to home. So I, yeah, I decided to go there and I ended up really enjoying my time there. And their mascot are Thunderbirds, which just seems oddly appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, and I guess, so was that a double major then? Because I, I saw that you, you, you focused on both art and English. So did you get a double major? Um, not quite. I got a major in art and then I minored in English. Um, okay. Yeah, I thought about doing a double major, um, but I couldn't quite fit it into my schedule. But afterwards, I I pursued both in the teaching program. Um, and I ended up doing my practicum and getting to experience like being an art and English teacher at a high school. Um, and <laughs> yeah, during that time, it was incredibly stressful. And it sort of made me realize like, oh, maybe teaching isn't my thing. Um, mm. I guess, what is it that you thought would have been, um, I mean, what did you like about teaching that made you want to originally go that path? Well, I loved the teachers that I'd had at um, McMath at my high school in Richmond. And um, I guess I thought like it would be cool to, you know, connect with people at that point in their life when they're just trying to figure out what they want to do. And um, yeah, I think just the idea of like learning from like young kids, but then also them learning from you. And I think it's a cool relationship just like, and one that, you know, you can influence a lot of people um, at the same time. So yeah, I, um, I think I also had this idea too, that like, as a teacher, I would still be able to pursue um, my other passions on the side. 
But then talking to other teachers in the field, it seemed like it was <laughs> a lot more of a demanding job than I realized. Um, and I do know some teachers who are able to like, you know, publish books and pursue other things. Um, but I just don't think I had the mental capacity for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, didn't you end up getting a teaching certificate though? Like, so you, you seemed like oh, yeah. you're pretty committed to that for a while. You know what? I was. Um, <laughs> and I, I passed that practicum by like the skin of my teeth, man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it was cool. Um, like, even though it was so difficult, I did have a good time and I, I also thought like, you know what, I'm just going to see this through. And um, so I did get certified. Yeah. And after, like once I was done the program and, you know, needed to find a job, I applied to a bunch of places, but I couldn't find work. And um, I also didn't want to leave the city and work somewhere remote. So while I was waiting to hear back from all of the places that I'd applied to, I decided to start teaching private art classes. Um, so I did that for a summer in, in Steveston, where I'd grown up. And so I was teaching maybe like a handful of kids, like maybe five, six, seven kids um, from like eight to 11. And um, actually teaching that small group as opposed to teaching like 30 kids in a classroom. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, actually, one of the girls that was in one of my classes, she's an actress now. And oh, wow. in, in that Netflix movie, um, <laughs> to all the oh, boys wow. I've loved before, <laughs> she's like the youngest daughter. Wow. Um, I'm sure she doesn't remember me or if she does, she, <laughs> that's amazing though. I mean, you, you taught for like a summer and you, you had a, a famous student. Already. I know. Right. It's kind of cool. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and so, you know, I guess while you're in, while you're in school, um, like what type of mediums were you working in? Like as far as your artistic side of that program, um, were you working watercolors already or was it just kind of a, a variety of mediums that you were exploring? Um, it was a variety. Yeah. I actually really got into acrylics and doing these like huge paintings, um, like 48 by 48 inch paintings. And actually during university, I got rid of my bed and ended up sleeping on the floor in my room because I needed more room to work on my art. Wow. And so I got really good at just sleeping anywhere. Um, and it, I never regretted that decision. I didn't even stop to consider like, maybe this is a little, eh, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but my room, this is what my bedroom looked like while I was at university. It was basically just, um, uh, coffee table, like a circle wooden table with chairs, because uh, <laughs> I had this idea that I could turn my bedroom into a cafe where other artists could come and visit. Um, that never happened. I think the only people that would come visit me in my cafe bedroom were my brother and a couple <laughs> of my friends. But um, <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, wh where did you imagine you were sleeping during this time? I mean, while people were having coffee and talking about art. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I had a great window seat set okay. up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I could sleep anywhere. Actually, there are a couple of times my dad would find me passed out under the kitchen table because I'd stayed up so late working on essays and stuff. 
I was a really good procrastinator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess you know after you graduated in in 2014, and you know, it sounded like you were you were trying to to become a teacher for a while. Um, was that uh, I guess. I'm trying to align the timing with when you moved to Seattle, because I know you lived in Seattle for, for a period. Um, was yeah. that right after college or was that a little bit later? That was like, a, yeah, a year after I graduated. Um, okay. After I graduated and I had that chunk of time where I was sort of just floating around and um, I hadn't yet found a teaching job, but I was teaching a couple private classes. Um, so in that year... Before I moved to Seattle, I that's when I started um, my Etsy shop. And so that Christmas, I decided to work on a line of Christmas cards just for my friends. And so I ended up drawing, doing these ink drawings of um, just like funny characters. Like I did this line of Christmas cards that I called Santa's other reindeer. And I was like, these are the reindeer that aren't in the poem. And so I drew these like anthropomorphic reindeer, like, you know, Leonard, the literary reindeer. And he's just like (laughs) a fat reindeer in a suit that reads a lot. And then I did like um, Bjorn, the existential reindeer. And he's like a reindeer that's just looking at his reflection in an ornament and So I had a lot of fun just doing like these fun cards. And I think it was just how I responded to doing all this like very theoretical, heavy stuff in university. Like I did these really big sort of um, mythological inspired paintings. And so I think after all that, like working in oils and acrylics and all that um, all those messy mediums. I thought I just, it was nice to kind of go back to doing these very small detailed ink drawings. Um, and it was kind of the style that I had played around with when I was younger and like through high school, I loved to do like just fun little drawings of like dragons or characters or whatever popped into my head. So I kind of went back to that to sort of reground myself, you know, um, and I ended up, so after I like came out with these cards, I decided like, oh, maybe I can just start selling these. And I opened a Etsy shop and then I started doing a couple of uh, craft shows around Vancouver. Mm. And, um, oh, but in my last year of the teaching program, I got married. So that's why I <laughs> moved to the States. I should add, I should throw that in. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it was a long distance thing. Um, but my... Yeah, my husband at the time lived in Boston, and so we were long distance for a year. Um, And then we decided that since we both know people in Seattle, that and since I have dual citizenship because I was born in San Antonio, all right, um, it just made sense to move to Seattle. And um, so, so I moved down there. Yeah, about a year after I graduated, and. I was a barista for like the, my first year and a half there just to, you know, kind of get my feet off the ground. But during that time, I kept working on my Instagram and my Etsy shop and I was doing a lot of freelance work. Actually, I was doing a lot of custom pet portraits. Mm. Um, Where did those come in from? Was that through your social media, like where you got those commissions? Yeah, so I think it started with friends or people I know. And then as I shared more on social media, I got more jobs. And um, 
And I went back to watercolors, which is the medium that I had um, been most comfortable with when I was in high school. Um, so at like in like, yeah, 11th grade, I started taking uh, private watercolor classes actually at, um, it was like a local art shop in Steveston called Phoenix Art. And um, the teacher there, Mark, he was great. And he actually taught me all the fundamentals of doing mm. watercolor paintings. So um, I went back to doing watercolors and um, yeah, that's the medium I worked in when I started doing these like pet portraits and stuff. And Is it something that you, you didn't have time to do during college? Like were you not able to do watercolors during college? Did you kind of give that up for a period and then come back to it? Um, yeah, I, I kind of did. I I don't know why. I think I just really wanted to experiment with as many mediums as I could while I was in college. Um, and I actually really got into photography, into um, film photography. Yeah, I liked working with acrylics and working big and doing like big expressive pieces. Um, it was just very, I don't know, cathartic, you know, and watercolor is such a controlled, um, quite difficult medium to work with. Um, whereas working in acrylics is so much more forgiving. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a nice change. Um, but I eventually went back to watercolors cause, um, it was definitely less expensive and, um, I don't know. There was, there was a couple of reasons where it just made sense. Like I liked how it wasn't as say, toxic or fumey is working with oils and with acrylics like I well I had less space also when I moved into like my little one bedroom apartment with my um then husband and so it I guess I just yeah I, I went back to work like I worked really big and on a really large scale in university but when I moved to Seattle i it made more sense to me to work really small. While you're in Seattle, were you were you very active in like the art community? I'm, I'm kind of curious what that community was like there and if you were involved with it. Yeah, um, I am very shy and not great at networking. So I was very involved in like the online or it was easier to get involved in the online community through Instagram and stuff. Um, but I wouldn't say I got super involved with the art community in Seattle. Also, I had, um, I had a hard time, I guess, trying to figure out where the illustration community was in Seattle. There was definitely like a prominent fine art community, but, um, the illustration community was a little bit elusive. Then again, I don't think I tried very hard to find it, but, but when Gallery, uh, when Nucleus Portland reached out to me, um, I started connecting a lot with the Portland community, which was cool because everyone there just seemed super, super cool and um, always willing to like give me advice when I when I needed it. And so was that that connection with with Nucleus Portland? Was that like your first um, entrance into more of a, a gallery setting? Like, ha had you started showing before then? Because I know your your um, your CV, the first show that you list is is a show at Nucleus Portland in 2018. Um, but was that your first time showing? Was with them? 
Um, yeah, that was my first time showing with them. And that was definitely like my first um, big art show. Um, but I actually, uh, the first, I guess technically the first show I ever did was back in Vancouver. Um, and it was right before I moved. And uh, the show itself happened after I'd already moved to Seattle, so I ended up having to bring my paintings back to Vancouver. But it was at this gallery that I think closed down called the Gam Gallery, um, right in downtown Vancouver. And um, <laughs> I didn't sell a single painting at that show. Uh -huh. um, it's fine, but I was really, and to this day, I'm still really proud of all the pieces that I did for that show. Um, it was called Deep Think Thoughts, and um, it was inspired by the stories that I had actually been writing at university. So I, I never did stop writing stories like like how I did when I was younger. And um, so when so this gallery approached me about doing a show just in their back room, so I'll, I just had like you know seven eight paintings in the back, and they were watercolor paintings. And um, they were just random images of scenes from stories that I had been writing. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a fun show. And I, I still have like the paintings because I, I never sold them. But um, but yeah, so that was the first show that I ever did. And it was a little disheartening, you know, not having sold a single piece. Um, so it was cool, though, when Nucleus reached out um, and I did a show with them. I think I sold every piece at that nice. exhibit. So that was a real boost of confidence. And I think that's what made me think like, oh, maybe I could pursue this. Well, and I think that speaks to, you know, the fact that you have to find the gallery that fits your art, you know, that their customer base is aligned with your art style. And, and it may have been that that first gallery just wasn't aligned in the right way. And, and they, you know, Nucleus Portland was very much more. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Like, and Nucleus Portland is also very like, um, inclusive, especially with traditional artists. Um, and so I think, I think, I guess, yeah, it was cool to kind of show alongside other artists that definitely seemed to vibe with the kind of art I was doing. Like, I definitely felt like I found the community that I'd been looking for, you know, people who just have these um, wild imaginations. And <laughs> <laughs> so how did, how did you make that connection? Did they reach out to you? Did you kind of, um, you know, solicit to them? Like, how did that come together? Uh, yeah, they reached out to me, I think, through Instagram. Um, and I think I first did a group show with them. So it kind of gave them my, an idea of like the kind of stuff that I do. And then they invited me to do a two person show, um, alongside, uh, Amy Earls, who's also a really awesome oil, oil painting artist. And, um, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of, how, so I, I feel pretty lucky that they reached out and, Oh, that's awesome. It was very, it was very exciting. <laughs> well, and, and you've shown, um, you know, with, with Talon and Antler and other uh, galleries in the Portland area, I guess, uh, why do you think that Portland has just become such a big, you know, market for your work in general? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think part of it is that I, 
Well, I never really stopped trying to depict the stories and the worlds that I've been building in my head. And I feel like the crowd in Portland loves, you know, discovering work that sort of opens up like a new world, I guess. It's interesting that, that, that you have these kind of regional, um, uh, regional communities that have a different kind of taste and a different vibe. And, and I, I just kind of noticed that, that your work t- tends to be focused more in the Portland area. So I thought that was interesting. And one thing that I also noticed uh, looking at your CV was that it seems like every year since that 2018 show, you've done a solo show like once every year. Um, is that like a comfortable pace for you having like one big show a year? Is that kind of what you're aiming for? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you ask that because this past year... <laughs> Um, so I've definitely actually after, um, when the pandemic hit, it definitely caused me to stop and ask myself like what a realistic work cycle is for me. Um, and (laughs) working, like putting out one show a year, it definitely got to the point where I was, um, sort of hitting like, I guess my max capacity for what I was capable of and um I do like having like something to work towards every year um actually uh about four years ago I I think I just completely burnt myself out because I started getting these like insane panic attacks and um it got pretty bad um and it started with me working really late one night and I remember I stood up really quickly while I was working and I threw out my back and so that whole week my back was thrown out and I had been working on a solo show and then a couple days later I ended up getting like these really bad panic attacks and so that's when I realized like okay maybe I need to like um slow things down but um So I started like doing less um, extra work and just focusing on actually focusing on just one show a year. I found I could still do, but doing extra group shows and trying to put do extra work on top of that, I think was a bit much for me. Um, So the change that you made was just to kind of narrow your focus to to the one show and not have all these other things that you're trying to juggle at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and actually this most recent show that I just had, um, a couple months ago uh, at Nucleus, um, I would say that working on that show was definitely the most comfortable that I'd been. And I think it was because I'd learned how to say no to just other, other galleries and other commitments that normally I would try to take on. Um, was that hard making that adjustment to say no to feel comfortable saying no? Oh, it was very difficult. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was um it was very hard. But um and then also I I have a lot of like ideas for personal projects that I would like to work on and so making the decision to just make more time for work that's really meaningful to me but might not necessarily make me all the money that I want to make. It's it's very difficult. I mean, you're basically 
It feels like you're rejecting money, which is always a very uncomfortable thing to do, especially as an artist. Like, sure. you should take what you can get, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it, as far as like just maintaining a good mental health, like there's importance to, to that, you know, having the time to really um, you know, do something that's meaningful to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, And my mental, I definitely let my mental health get to a pretty bad place. Like, I, uh, I mean, even just just over a year ago, I had a psychiatrist diagnose me with agoraphobia and panic disorder, because I think, yeah, I had still been trying to work out just that work life balance. and also, I was going through a couple of tough things last year. Um, like, one of the reasons I moved back to Vancouver from Seattle was I split up with my husband at the time. And um, that year, I had signed myself up for, like, five different shows. Um, and that wasn't including a solo show that I'd also agreed to. So I ended up dropping out of those five shows, which was very difficult, but I'm really glad that I did that. Um, and actually this past year, like my mental health has just improved exponentially. And so it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's going really well. I mean, there was a point when I was scared to go to the grocery store, uh, across the street, but now I can, you know, take a train down to Portland for my show. So yeah, it's, it's cool. No, I mean, I I think the past two years have been um, quite difficult for a lot of people in, in that same way, just adjusting to what the world has become and, uh, you know, uh, avoiding yeah. constant state of dread that, you know, <laughs> you know so I mean, I, I completely <laughs> appreciate what you're saying. I think a lot of people have had similar type of experiences in their own ways. You know, I think we've all kind of dealt with this differently. Um, yeah. But then also to have five shows you know, personal, uh, things going on with your relationship, all of that happening at the same time, you have to imagine, um, the toll that that was taking on you. So I'm glad that you're able to kind of come out of that and recognize a healthy balance that, that works for you in, in the end. Yeah, actually. Um, and working on the medieval critters that I've been doing most recently, that was actually a huge help to me. Um, And I think I started doing them like right before the pandemic, like in 2020. And so um, just something about drawing these like cute, you know, vulnerable creatures (laughs) I really related to, but then arming them with weapons or armor or just anything to help them out in the world. um, I think that spoke to me and I, I think it spoke to other people too. Um, a part of me was worried, like just with all my mental health stuff, like, Oh, my art is going to suffer because of this, you know? And, um, there's also this idea that like, as an artist, you kind of sacrifice yourself for, you know, the great art, like all the great artists have the suckiest lives. So, you know, if your life is sucky, that means you're doing it right. But, (laughs) um, You know what I mean? Like there's that idea that like, and I think it's, I think it's gotten better, but there is still like, I think there's still like, we put past artists 
on a pedestal and admire the toll that it took on their body and mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've sort of been (laughs) reprogramming to get out of that. And, um, And luckily, like, I don't think my art did suffer because of, you know, all the craziness happening. I, um, but I think part of the reason is I decided to just jump into my art as a source of comfort. And, um, Mm. so yeah, I feel like just the past few years, um, you know, learning how to prioritize like my health and just trying to make stuff that feels more authentic. It's, it's actually been, um, it's actually turned out pretty good. <laughs> nice. And so, so I guess going forward, do you feel like you have a pretty strong like framework to work with now and that will maintain that kind of positive mental health? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I said that not very confidently, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, definitely. Um, and the fact that I'm just overall, I think functioning better um, proves that. And um, yeah, like actually my next show, my next solo show isn't until next fall. And that was a very conscious decision to give myself like um, enough time to sort of recover after a show. And um, so I think I've definitely gotten a lot better at creating a timeline that Mm. works with just what I want. Yeah. Well, and and I guess like with anything, it's a matter of just maintaining that and constantly just, you know, checking in with yourself. Because I think a lot of times you put you put yourself in a good spot and then you kind of neglect it over time. And then until something happens and forces you to think about it again, and then you're back at the beginning and it's sort of the cycle. Um, But kind of just constantly checking in with yourself, I think, is is an important thing. And it sounds like you're in a really good spot. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So uh, you mentioned. you know, that, that you've gotten to the point where you're able to, to take trains to your shows in Portland. Is that something that you do regularly? Like when you have a show, cause you, you do show in a different city where you live. So do you try to go make those shows in Portland when you have them? Yeah, I do. Um, last year I think was the first time I wasn't able to make it to my show, but I mean, I was in Canada and the border was closed and it's, mm. yeah, not much I could do about that. But, um, I do like to go to my shows and to my openings when I can. Um, it's always very nerve wracking though. And I always get really sweaty and anxious. And, um, the first opening I went to in Portland, actually, that was very anxiety inducing. And, um, I'm surprised my panic attacks didn't hit then because it, <laughs> it was a lot, but, but it's, it's also very exciting too. And, um, it's cool going to them and just being able to like talk to people face to face as opposed to just, reading comments online and whatnot like um sometimes i uh i also get very nervous at going to the shows because i feel like i'm not great at um (laughs) talking about my work in person and also like i uh sometimes i think i miss certain social cues and or um I don't know. I get, I get very nervous. I'm a very anxious person. So it's always a big deal for me when I go, but I feel like it's always a nice sort of, um, a nice 
it's always nice to sort of, yeah, hear what people think about your work in person. And um, it's like a nice source of validation, you know? Um, I just remember, I just remember at one of the openings, someone came up to me and they wanted to talk to the artist, but I thought they wanted to talk to like Stella or Charles or one of the gallery owners. So I just directed her to them and I was like, oh, you can, there they are, you can go over there. And she was like, oh no, I, I wanted to talk to you. And I was really taken aback. And I was like, oh, why? I- <laughs> <laughs> so if you ever go, if you ever go to one of my shows and you see someone looking very uncomfortable in the corner, that's me. <laughs> Be sure to ask um, to, to speak to the artist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and speaking of talking about your art, let's talk about your art a little bit. <laughs> kidding <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things uh, you know just reading up on on your your bio on your site you meant you list some of your interests um, including uh, mythology and folklore which obviously I think based on the conversation we've had so far is wouldn't be a surprise to anybody considering you know um, the type of uh, experiences you had growing up um, you also mentioned nature uh, in the natural world as an interest um, so I guess you know with mythology and, and getting into uh, incorporating that into your work, you know, obviously you had it as an interest in your writing and your reading, but how did it become kind of a central focus for your artwork? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. I'd always loved, like, I, I always got a lot of inspiration from uh, mid-century illustrators like, you know, um, Tolkien or Arthur Rackham or um, Kay Nielsen or John Bauer. And these guys always love to illustrate like fairy tales and or like mythologies. Um, but also their depiction of the natural world was always to me like super impressive. And I just loved the way that they blended all of these things. And, um, and so I learned a lot of the techniques I use now by actually just like looking at their work and then trying to emulate it in my own stuff. And, um, yeah, just like whenever I get stuck or actually one of the best ways or one of like the most efficient ways for me to come out of like a, what's it called? Like a creative block is, um, I'll pull up like some, uh, tales from mythology or, or from folklore, or sometimes I'll just pull up like poems or I'll flip open one of my favorite books and I'll read a passage and I'll just immediately get inspired or have an idea and I'll be able to move past that creative block. So, um, I guess that's the main reason I bring all of these different influences into my work is there all ways for me to just keep moving past my own like or they kind of help me get out of my head you know and I just yeah. forget about I just forget about like I feel like I'm always trying to find ways to trick myself into making work and forgetting that I do this for money because I find <laughs> that that's <laughs> so when when I get lost in these stories or in these tales it's like for a sec I forget that oh this is my profession and instead I just think about ways that I can illustrate um, these things. No, I think that's awesome. I mean, I I think that's, um, I feel like that's just a human experience in general. Like if you're, if you're focused so hard on solving a problem or doing a thing, 
Um, sometimes you just have to step away and think about something else or think about something else that yeah. you enjoy. And then the ideas start coming to you, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think that's why I always tried to like stay connected to all my other interests, especially in like the in English and literature. Because I found that like, if I just stuck with art, yeah, you just end up getting trapped in your in your mind. But if you're able to like jump out of that and explore other areas, like I find that that's definitely like the best way to sort of stay inspired. Awesome. So, I mean, even to this day, it's something that you continue to stay connected with? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I still write. I think I probably write more than I sketch, actually. Like, if you look at my sketchbooks, it's mostly writing because I just love, um, yeah, I just love it. So the, the stories that you write, are they stories about the characters that you end up illustrating? Yeah, actually, there's one character and he pops up continuously in my shows and I like this idea, actually, that if you've been to all my shows, you start to notice the patterns. Like, mm. there's this one guy, and actually, I don't think he was in my last show, but he's been in all my previous shows. And he looks like an anthropomorphic cat man, like a like Gandalf, but if he was a cat. So he's like this really old, wrinkly cat man. And he's a character I came up with in university. Um because I just had this, I, like, uh, do you want me to tell you the story behind yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I had this idea, like, well, I was, I, I used to, I loved watching the neighborhood cats. Um, and there was this one cat I saw that loved to walk along the dikes and ditches. And because Steveston is basically below sea level, right? So it's, it's intersected by all these dikes and all these ditches, um, which also shaped like the work I do now and why I love marshland animals so much because I loved like muskrats and toads and, um, but, uh, but anyways, I, so there was a cat that used to walk along this dike and, um, I always wondered like what the cat was doing there. And he was always just sitting on the edge, just watching. And I had this idea that like, okay, maybe this cat is just collecting stories and he just watches wow. the world. Um, and I, <laughs> I thought like, okay, when a cat dies, what if, you know, they come to death with all these stories and maybe the stories aren't really like um, really cool. I feel like I'm explaining this a lot worse than how I no. put it in my journal. <laughs> No, it's so interesting. Like, I mean, it's almost like this wise old um, storyteller in, the, in cat form. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So so his name's Aesop, the cat character. And basically, he is yeah a collector of stories. And when a cat dies, they enter his study. And I just picture him um, in this like study in an old armchair. And he'll make a pot of tea. And the cat will tell him everything the cat saw while they were alive. And if the story is good enough, Aesop will send the cat back up to the oh, world. Wow. And basically, if you keep collecting great stories, you can keep having infinite lives. And so that's how I figured cats have multiple lives. And so that's wow. who this character is. Um, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible just hearing the story behind. I mean, we see a glimpse of that story that you just told me in, in your paintings, but there's such a rich story behind it. So, I mean, have you ever thought about publishing any of these stories behind the works that you make? I have. And um, 
that's one reason why I took off so much time until my next show. I'm actually working on a graphic novel right now. Oh, nice. And um, I've never made one before, so <laughs> it's been a pretty huge learning curve, and I definitely need all of my resources <laughs> <laughs> to work on it. But, um, but yeah, every painting you see in my show is just a snippet of this larger story that I've been working on, and I've just never made the time to work on it. And part of the reason is, you know, I don't have the best time management skills. And another part of the reason is I have um, enormous imposter syndrome. And so I've just never thought that these stories are, you know, I just figured it was a risk I wasn't willing to take. But um, I feel like I've gotten to a point where my art is doing pretty well that I can sort of take a risk with that. Um, so yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> that's amazing. No, that's awesome. I mean, have you already gotten like a publisher lined up or is it just something you've kind of been doing, um, you know, preliminarily? Um, it's something I've just kind of been working on and I do have publishers in mind. Um, and actually I have published a book that I didn't write. So a couple years ago I published, um, a compendium of magical creatures and it combined my love of science with my love of art because I was able to do these like medical um, sort of like uh, diagrams of different magical creatures, like a cross section of a mermaid or whatever, like stuff like that. So, so I've, I've, di I've dipped my toes into the publishing world. Um, and also moving back here, I, uh, I was able to connect with some illustrators in the neighborhood, like in Vancouver and Richmond. So I've been getting some guidance and mentoring on how to put a graphic novel out there. So I feel, I feel like I have all the tools and the connections. I just need to, um, you know, do the thing. <laughs> no, that's exciting. So these stories that you, that you've been creating for what sounds like your entire life, are, are these stories rooted in like your own personal experiences? Are they telling your stories, but just in a different way? Or are these complete, you know, fiction that you've, you've kind of made up or some combination of those things, I guess? Yeah, I would say it's a combination. And I think that's part of the reason why it's been so difficult because um, some of the themes that I'm tackling are quite tricky and maybe a little bit triggering for me. Um, mm. But it's actually been very cathartic uh, working on it for that reason. But I have to take it really slow. Like um, if I spend, you know, a whole week working on my graphic novel, um, I will inevitably start getting hit with like a couple of anxiety attacks because I've spent too much time, you know, when you spend like a little bit too much time sort of digging into your past and into like <laughs> your childhood and everything. So um, it's great to have like my other work, like the work I sell on Etsy or the work I do for Nucleus, because it sort of helps me step back and take a break from that um, until I'm able to go back in again. That makes sense. And and you mentioned the um the compendium book that you worked on. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I guess what was your experience like um collaborating? Like how do you like collaboration? What was that experience like working on that book? Um it was really cool, yeah. Um and I actually I love collaborating cuz doing what I do, it can sometimes get a bit lonely just like 
working alone in my studio every day, you know? And so, um, I mean, I love it, but it's also, it was cool. It was a nice change to have a team of people that I could, um, work with. And also, um, it was a really great team that I worked with too. Um, like the author was just regularly sending me all this material and you know how I'm so inspired by literature. And so it was cool to just be receiving this constant stream of really great writing on just like, um, these magical creatures. And then, uh, my agent for that book, Adria, she was really great at also, um, giving her two cents on like how, what would make this drawing better or what would make the writing better. And it was kind of cool to just be like bouncing off, um, this team with just all my work and sort of like, yeah, I don't know. Like it was, it was really rewarding and like, it was cool being part of a team. And then when the book was finally done, being able to step back and see what they'd done, um, like what the designers had done and what like the editing team had done. It was all very like, um, yeah, magical. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, um, the, the, process that you used for creating the art piece that you used was it similar to the processes that you use for your your personal work or did you work in kind of a different way um actually it was different uh i ended up doing it mostly in water uh pencil crayons uh colored pencils so i'd actually done some colored pencils with my dad way back because that's the medium my dad worked in um And, uh, so it was a mix of like watercolor and colored pencils and it was, um, a lot of drawing as opposed to painting. And, um, it was very precise because I was doing these diagrams and stuff. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely different. I definitely worked, it was the hardest I'd ever worked on something too. And so I'd never done anything that demanding because usually I work on my own schedule, right? But working on this book, I had to, like, be aware of other people's timelines and stuff. So that was that was an adjustment. That was a bit tricky. And um, I actually moved my desk from my usual workspace into a closet. And I would just work in the closet with the doors closed so that I would actually get stuff done. And then before you know it, it was 8 a.m. And <laughs> oh, no. Oh, I mean, it, that sounds, uh, it sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, see, this was before I learned how to have a work-life balance. Um, so we're hearing the, 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 the lead up to the, the problems that you experience yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also when you're working with colored pencils, you're constantly like using pressure, right? Whereas when you're painting, you can just hold the brush lightly. And so my hand, my hands would get cramped constantly, Um And oh God, my diet was terrible. I was drinking like monster energy drinks and eating chips like late into the night. Um, But I loved it at the time because I just fed off of that like adrenaline and sort of like, I mean, I'm a, I've always been a procrastinator. So I think that was just working like that used to be my comfort zone. I mean, even in university, I remember having like a 20 page paper due the next day and I would start it the day before and I would still get an A. So I never learned. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I got to the point where my body literally was like, okay, you need to stop and basically just, yeah, took over. Well, I mean, it's good that you listen to that. So as far as your, your, like, your personal process goes, how do you usually, uh, I guess, arrive at your ideas for you know, a new piece or a new body of work? Is it very kind of an intentional exercise where you do uh, brainstorming activities like word lists or is it more of a natural kind of organic thing that just comes to you? Um, it's definitely it's definitely more organic and intuitive. Um, I find that whenever I try to do it uh, intentionally or I try to sort of, I don't know, force it, then my work just becomes very strained or or the process is just more painful for me. But um, so normally how I start a piece is um, I will just look through all of my reference photos that I've taken on my nature walks. Because um, whenever I go for a walk, I'll just take a million photos of everything I see, like mushrooms, tree stumps, uh, the cattails at the marshes, and I'll just go through like thousands of photos and I'll wait until a photo um, speaks to me. So like, for instance, one of the pieces in my last show, it was, of uh, it depicted a cat drinking tea next to a mossy rock. And that rock, um, I'd actually taken a picture of it last year from a walk, a hike that I did. And looking back on it, there was something about it that just spoke to me. And, um, so I decided to just start sketching it. And so usually what I'll do is like when a photo speaks to me, I'll, yeah, I'll just start drawing it in my sketchbook. And then usually something just kind of appears. Uh, it sounds so <laughs> magic. Know. It's like magic. <laughs> like, yeah, it appear. is. So, um, <laughs> and it always, it, it's kind of cool though, because it always surprises me. It's, it's cool that I can still sort of get surprised in the process, you know, like, mm. um, there are th some aspects of my, of the process that I do control though. So like, for instance, I've found that if I'm, if it's raining and I'm sitting in a cafe, like that's a really great environment for me to try to come up with something. So I think when I did draw that mossy rock cat piece, it was actually raining and I was in a cafe and I just started sketching or, um, or, uh, or yeah, sometimes I'll make a cup of tea and I'll have a cookie with that. And, um, and I'll just be set up in my armchair with my little wooden table. And so there's like certain things about my environment that I can control to help bring about that magical moment where, Oh, something has popped onto the page and it's pretty cool. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep drawing it, I guess. <laughs> it's cool that you've kind of recognized and identified the, the environmental surrounding that you need to be creative and kind of just fostering that, that around you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it definitely helps to have like a pile of books nearby too. <laughs> right. And so I, I guess um, once you do have a solid idea for a piece and you've, you've kind of identified that you want to go forward with that idea, um, do you start like fleshing out the composition in, in drawing form or did you just kind of jump right into painting? Like how much pre-work do you do before you start on a piece? Um, it's kind of evolved over the years. Um, so now, yeah, when I start a piece, I'll usually do just a small thumbnail sketch, um, just very rough in my sketchbook 
And then I'll usually do like a quick little color color sketch, um, just planning out what the color composition will be. And then I'll, after that though, I'll just jump right onto like the final paper and I'll just carefully, um, yeah, draw the whole image. And then from there, it's just layer upon layer of watercolors. But uh, the most frightening stage in that whole procedure is when it gets to the point where I have to paint like the final piece because um if I haven't if I've like if I haven't planned it out that great um sometimes I'll jump in and I'll be painting it for a week and then I'll realize I actually hate this color composition and so I'll have to restart the whole thing which is why I do that like uh which is why I do a little color composition thumbnail before I start because um, there's nothing worse than, yeah, restarting something. Um, but occasionally I will just jump straight in without any preparation because I'm so confident in what the idea is that I feel like, oh, yeah, it's, it'll just happen. It's, yeah, it's a very, it's a very organic process. Um, and in earlier shows, like the first show I did at Nucleus, some of the drawings from that show, I, I didn't even sketch them out. I didn't even know what they would end up looking like. Like I remember one of the pieces, um, I just, and it's on really expensive paper too. So it's like, <laughs> so this is how I get my thrills, you know, when I, <laughs> this is the equivalent to skydiving when I just decide to jump straight in. But no, I remember one piece, I started just drawing a branch because like the branch looked really cool and it just spoke to me. Um, so I just started drawing it and then I saw a face in the branches and I realized it was Aesop, that cat character. And so I just threw him in there and I just drew him with the branches and I just kept adding stuff that felt right. And when I was done, it was like one of my favorite pieces from the show. So, um, I love when kind of like happy accidents like that happen. Um, yeah. I mean, it, you've, you've described a couple of different cases just now where the nature that you got excited about drove the idea for the piece rather than the character. Is that a common thing? Like, do you tend to start with what does that natural environment look like and then insert a character into it? Yeah, I would say more often than not, that's how I go about it is I'll see um, a log and think, oh, that log's pretty cool. And um or, you know, I'll see a stick and be like, oh, this stick is pretty cool. I need to find a way to make a story. Like, there's definitely a story there. I don't know what it is, but I know it's there. Um, I actually, I collect a lot of sticks and things when I go out on walks. Um, like, I was on a walk with my friend a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were just, like, walking her kid around town. And I stopped at one point on the sidewalk. And I was like, oh my God, the stick is so cool. Can I just, and I was like putting stuff in her stroller to carry <laughs> home. <laughs> like so, like honestly, my stick collection is one of my favorite collections. And I'm, tr I'm trying to find a way to display them all because I think they're so cool. Um, that's awesome. And that's how I started drawing like these medieval characters because I picked a stick up and I thought, oh, this looks like a little bow and arrow. Maybe I can do a little animal with bow and arrow. 
And so while you're painting on a, on a piece that, that you've, you've kind of gone to that stage with, do you tend to focus entirely on it until it's done? Or do you, do you work on multiple pieces to kind of break stuff up? Um, when I'm doing a show, I, I definitely have to take it one piece at a time. Yeah, when I'm working on one piece, like that piece is my whole world. And I find that it's easier if I can just focus on it. Um, but sometimes I will have other like um, activities that I will break it up with. Like I'll be working on this one painting and maybe I'll finish the drawing stage. And then I'll step away and do some writing or um, draw something silly and totally um totally different. But yeah, I'm rarely working on multiple paintings at a time because I find that, yeah, that just doesn't work for me. And so, you know, we, we talked a little bit about um, creating a creative environment uh, for you to work in. And the fact that watercolors do give you kind of the um, freedom to work wherever you want because there isn't those toxic elements that you might have in oils. So do you have, like, do you tend to work in a dedicated studio space that's that you've kind of curated or is it working from home? Like what's your work environment like? Um, it's It's been different over the past few years, but yeah, more recently I, I'll usually just create like a dedicated corner in my home space. Um, and I have had studio spaces in the past, but actually I found that I prefer just having a dedicated spot where I live because I feel like the other areas in my life just bleed so naturally into my art that like when I have a studio space, there's always something that I've forgotten or wish I had access to back home. Mm. And it's just easier if I can work at home because then I can just very quickly grab, you know, a book that I suddenly want to look at or, or I can like, jump over to another table and do some crafting and then jump back to my workspace. So I, I like having stations set up in my home and then I can sort of move around them as, um, as the mood strikes. <laughs> well, and you have your, your stick collection at home. You, I mean, and I got my stick collection that. at home. I also have an acorn collection. So when my anxiety, when my anxiety was really bad and I would get scared walking anywhere, um, anytime I would go to the post office to drop off orders, I would always pick up acorns or need to bring acorns with me because I found that rubbing them was very comforting. Oh, and nice. so I have this huge <laughs> acorn collection. And, um, actually I started playing D and D a couple months ago and my character in D and D also has a huge acorn collection. <laughs> so, you know, my, <laughs> my creative life and my actual life, um, there's a lot of overlap there. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I, I guess the one um, the one thing about working from home, though, like the risk in that is is protecting, being protective of your work life balance. You know, we talked a little yeah. bit about that earlier. So I guess uh, how how do you approach that in a way that maintains that healthy work life balance that you want? Yeah, that is um, that is really that's a great question. Um, <laughs> so one thing I do is. Um, I'm, I've got, I've actually gotten really good at just blocking off time dedicated to work and time dedicated to not work. And also I never bring my work into my bedroom. So 
when I'm like winding down at the end of the day, it's, I, it's, I'm able to sort of just separate, um, that aspect of my life and just, you know, read or write or do something, um, not related directly to whatever I'm working on. Um, it's definitely tricky and sometimes I still end up compromising myself and find that I've sort of let things, um, spiral a bit out of control, but I'm always able to bring it back. Um, but yeah, I, I think just being really good about time management and then also separating my space really well. Um, like right now my space is kind of split in half and half of my living area is like, you know, watching TV or, um, doing hobbies or whatever. And then the other half of my space is just working on, um, shows or working on my book or yeah, doing work stuff. So yeah, it's, it's tricky, but I think I'm managing it. Are there days that you just completely take off? Like, or do you take the weekends off? Like, how do you, um, how do you manage that? Uh, yeah, I do take the weekends off actually. Um, and that's been, really helpful. It took me a while though to get to that point where I could just let myself relax on the weekend. Um, and I still end up sometimes working on the weekend. Um, but usually if I do work on the weekend, it's because something really fun, like a fun idea occurred to me and I know it would be a lot of fun to work on. So I'll just, um, do that. But Sunday is actually, I make sure to never work. Um, nice day of rest <laughs> day of rest yeah I'll usually watch like an unhealthy amount of TV and eat something disgusting and uh, <laughs> what what shows are you, are you watching any good shows right now um, I am yeah I'm watching a lot of cartoons which I love um, I love Gravity Falls so that's kind of been my that and Bob's Burgers have both been <laughs> my go-to actually I love putting on Bob's Burgers because it totally helps me get my mind off the the kind of work that I do. You know, it's like the exact opposite of what I do. So it's like a really nice, it's a nice brain break. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. So so let's talk about what you have coming up. And we talked a little bit about the fact that you have uh, a show coming up at fall of next year. Um, yeah. I guess, what does the rest of 2022 look like for you? Have you already started working on that show or what have your, what's your focus going to be for the rest of the year? Um, yeah, I've already been sketching up ideas in my sketchbook for that show. And because I have so much time before it happens, um, it's going to be probably my most ambitious show to date. And I'm pretty excited for it. And um, also, in a couple weeks, I'm going to Scotland with, um, with Light Grey Art Lab and doing like an RPG themed tour around there, like staying in castles and... Um, oh, wow going in nature and checking out a bunch of cool stuff. So I, I think that's going to feed into my show as well. No, it's awesome. And also you're obviously your graphic novel. So that's, and that's my graphic that's, novel. I yeah. mean, that's probably going to take up most of the time. And, um, my hope is that I'll have some, like, I'll be able to get it published by, I'm scared to, um, <laughs> say too much about it, but my goal is to, get enough done that I can find a publisher for it before the end of the year. Um, but I've already done, I've already done a lot of work on it. So I'm pretty confident. 
So I guess, and not having done anything in the publishing world, like how far, how much of it do you need to have done before you feel comfortable actually approaching a publisher? Um, well, the, uh, I spoke to an author, a comic book author a couple months ago, and he told me that, um, usually you would want to have like, you know, at least 12, maybe 15 pages totally done. And then the rest of the story, um, like outlined and I'm planning to do like an 80 page novel and I've already got the outline done and everything. And I've already got a lot of it storyboarded. So I basically just need to, um, yeah, come up with like the first little chunk. Um, and, uh, and then I'll be able to approach someone. Um, so yeah, I've, I've actually done a lot of work for it. I even drew like a map for it, um, for the world. And it's kind of inspired by like the marshes that I grew up in. So just that's exciting. Like, yeah, it's gonna be very like never-ending story meets. Oh, I love it! The last unicorn, <laughs> just <laughs> that's amazing. I love I love never never-ending story. I grew up with that. Um, that and the Princess Bride were like two like, oh, yeah. staples of my childhood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and the Dark Crystal. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, does it have a title yet? I mean, I don't want to, if you're not comfortable talking about too much about it, but if you, it'd be interesting if you know what the title is. Um, well, the title that I've picked out for it, it's actually the title of the first show that I did with Nucleus Portland, um, which was called The Muddle. So, all the pieces I did for that first show were basically from the world that my graphic novel is going to be set in. So, if you've seen the works from that you'll kind of have an idea of how it will how it will look awesome very cool um i guess anything else that you'd want to put on people's radar that you got coming up for the year any events print releases stuff like that um nothing um specific but i am really excited for this trip to scotland and i'm going to be making a lot of new work from that so i think just keep an eye out for the work that comes out of that awesome very cool. So I, I guess last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody. Uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, have you had have you had Tegan White on your show? I haven't. No. And I love Tegan. I love Tegan's work so much. Yeah, she's great. Um, so that would be cool. Or. um Sorry, I'm terrible with names when I'm on the spot, but um, but Tegan would be really cool. So that's who I'm going to say. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Great choice. And, and I will do my best. <laughs> so, uh, but, but thank you so much for, for doing the show. This has really been a lot of fun. I, a pleasure talking to you and get to know more about you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great talking to you, Michael. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lily. It was really lovely to hear how big of a presence that storytelling has been throughout her entire life. From the stories that she wrote as a kid that she read to her father, to all the wonderful tales that she writes about the characters that she paints in her artwork. Storytelling has been so you know, beautifully woven into the fabric of her life, and it was, it was a treat to talk to her about that. Like You can definitely see the excitement and passion and enthusiasm that she has for it. It definitely seems like visual art and the written word make this wonderful partnership in her life. 
And up until now, you know, we on the outside have only really seen half of that equation. So I was really stoked to hear about the graphic novel project that she started working on. For now, it sounds like the title of the book is going to be The Muddle, which was also the very first show that she had at Nucleus Portland and features a lot of the characters that she's included in her work dating all the way back to that first show. So it was really nice to hear that she's ready to share that side of her work with the rest of the world. Definitely keep an eye on her Instagram feed to stay up to date with the latest on this. Also keep an eye out for the new works that she'll be creating following her trip with Light Gray Art Lab. It's obvious how much Lily loves and appreciates the nature and the environment around her, and how much inspiration she draws from those experiences. So I'm really eager to see what she ends up creating after she gets back from this trip. It sounds like she'll be posting a lot of what she makes on her social media, so definitely follow that to see how it all unfolds. So thanks again to Lily for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. And just a reminder, one big way you could help out if you're really enjoying the show would be to check out the show's Patreon. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash artifairs. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artifairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artifairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other. Thank you.